the stories of the ones who came before What stories will be told of us when we are here no more We commit ourselves to action, it brings meaning to our days Aleinu l'shabeiach, it's time to live our praise Welcome to the second episode of the Jewish Diasporist Podcast. You're with your hosts, Ben Yanowitz and Zach Smarin. Today we'll be talking about our experience organizing for and experiencing the UJS conference in Shrewsbury, UK, that took place at the beginning of February 2023. Almost nailed it with the American pronunciation. <laughs> Well, it was a very interesting time, let's say. Um, so before we get started, as we got there, we had done some groundwork. We'd spent two, three, four months, something like that, doing groundwork, setting up what we called the Jewish Future Platform for a brief overview of what that is, just to remind our listeners. That was eight motions that we submitted essentially re-articulating the values of Bundism, those touched on building connections with Jewish diaspora organizations, increasing access to Jewish culture and all of its diversity, increasing access to Jewish studies and Jewish academic engagement, calling for inclusivity mechanisms for Jewish student communal spaces, combating anti-Semitism, solidarity with striking academic workers, non-cooperation with the Israeli state, and encouraging a human rights-based approach to Israel-Palestine. So that's just a brief rundown of what we were calling for, but it got complicated the moment we touched down. So Zach, do you want to give us a little rundown of our first experience of the UJS conference? The motions that we wrote were part of a collective process they worked on for uh, yeah quite some time. I think we know solidly well over 20-25 hours on calls in the previous months, ones that specifically included organizing about that. There's a lot to say about uh, the UJS conference. And if you want to hear us uh, talk about our platform and the conference, a different version, then we also uh, recommend reading the article that both of us have co-authored. It will be published by the point that this podcast will be published, though we're not exactly sure where it will be because the print version will be published in Australia. But we'll have to find a way of getting it to someplace. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to say, we'll, we'll let you all know when we have it out. It's definitely going to be at some point on the internet, but we do not know where or when that'll be. The fun of organizing. Absolutely. it's We're all very much organizing or organizing. So yeah, where do we start? I guess the best point for it is to start by the time when we arrive there in person. Mm -hmm. A few words maybe about uh, UJS conference or more specifically conference and convention because the conference takes place on the Sunday whilst before that is actually what in many previous years was organized separately UJS convention. They decided to combine them, I think starting from last year, actually. And the convention is basically a Shabbaton. Uh, is a Shabbaton something that exists in America? I never went to something that was called a Shabbaton, but I know things like that take place. I used to go to nifty events and stuff that were essentially exactly the same, like a, a long weekend that you'd spend immersed in a Jewish world. You'd spend Shabbat together. You would do like educational programming together you would have fun together you you know the typical things that jews do together when we all join together in one communal space absolutely i mean it was uh, it very much fostered that kind of communal environment and it allowed jewish students from jsox or jewish societies from all across the british isles the largest ones were there there was quite a few people from uh, leeds bristol birmingham many of the london jsox you were the only one from york yeah, York's, York's JSOC is roughly, we have typically 10 to a little bit more than 10 on Friday night dinners. So it's not a big, it's not a big JSOC. It's very small. Um, but I was the only one in attendance, unfortunately. Um, but it was an interesting experience because of that. Because basically I knew nobody but Zach and our other comrade, Zach. Um, and besides that, it was a sea of 300 Jewish students from across the country and Ireland and beyond. Um, all 
all wearing matching. Yeah, all wearing the same matching sweatshirts. So it became an interesting time, but it was it was certainly enjoyable to the extent that like it's just cool to be surrounded by that many Jews. Like there really isn't that many opportunities to be in a space like that. So we really took it as an opportunity to experience that and it was all included like travel accommodations, all of that was paid for by the UJS. So it was pretty hard to say no to going to that. Absolutely. I mean, we are going to get into our criticisms, including, you know, deep institutional criticisms of the Union of Jewish Students, not perhaps completely in this particular podcast, but maybe going into the future. But we do have to be fair and we do have to acknowledge the kind of work that goes into creation of such an environment. You know, this was done through very dedicated work of a whole army of bus drivers, cooks, to many of the preparations for speakers, to the publishing of the Shabbat companions with full transliteration. That's something that very much has been a request for many years. Uh, I remember at least at Warwick to have transliterated uh, Shabbat services. And all of that takes effort. And, you know, if we did not already see that a lot of the work that is done is work that is very much valuable, we could not imagine improving upon that work to a significant extent. And it is important to remember, you know, that many of the institutional issues are not the result of one person doing something bad or two people doing something bad. Many people get involved specifically because they want to target those uh, problems and enact changes. And that might be beyond the capacity of individual people. Yeah, I mean, as we often say as socialists, like it's not people that we're against, it's systems. And I think that's no less true when it comes to our own Jewish institutions than when we're talking about the flaws of capitalism in general. It's something that I think is really useful to understand that these are institutions that do serve positive roles as well as potentially harmful roles, as we will be discussing going forward. Yeah, but we arrived on Friday. I arrived on the bus with Leeds because there was actually a train strike, so I wasn't able to catch my train from York. And solidarity with the RMT and the workers that were on strike, but it was a little inconvenient. <laughs> but especially because your Leeds... ticket got reimbursed, right? Uh, yeah, it did. No, just to just to say that for students that were not able to catch the coaches from from across the country, whether they were coming, the one that was going from London via Oxford to Shrewsbury, they were the tickets were reimbursed. Yeah, so it really was interesting because I mean I was on the bus from Leeds, and Leeds is a huge JSOC, and there were a number of people that were. It just it wasn't the most welcoming bus ride I've ever experienced. So that was an interesting way to start. Then we arrived in Shrewsbury and again I knew very few people, got settled in my room with like seven, eight other people, started to just schmooze, meet people. Yeah, it it was an interesting experience. Like nothing really against it. They gave us snacks. It was a pretty normal day. Interesting experience. Got to meet a lot of people. Eventually caught up with Zach. Um and yeah. I was on the I was on the London bus as mentioned. Someone who was with me ended up mentioning that uh, they heard someone say that uh, they'll be picking up the anti-Zionists in Oxford, which is very funny. <laughs> that 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 is not talking necessarily about me. You know, certainly Jewish students for justice uh, have created that reputation a little bit for Oxford, though not as much as some of us might want, at least not on a, on a regular basis. But that was, you know, it was very much interesting to see people from those London JSOCs. In fact, it was the second bus from London. Another was going from London. But we were able to talk to a lot of very interesting people, students from LSC, I think UCL were there as well. And it was, you know, about two and a half hours ride. Very enjoyable, spent it all the time chatting and finally when we arrived on place i had a bit more contacts because of my time previously at warwick i saw you know all of their exec together it was good to meet up with them although i do still see them on a fairly regular basis some people i haven't seen in a longer time some people who i've only spoken to online and never met in person we didn't have that much time for that because almost immediately it was evening so we had to go into our services and the services were very nicely divided there was there was um there was a Sephardic service. We were in Reform, uh, Orthodox. Uh, there was a Sephardic as well. Yes, yes. Um, as well as a Liberal, which is essentially American Reform. I was at the Liberal service, and it felt really welcoming. Like, we were singing some same tunes I knew, and I feel like there's just something really homely when you're in a religious service 
5,000 miles from home and then you start hearing a melody that you know and singing along and it's like, wow, I really do feel the song that I used to sing in my summer camp when I was little, that wherever you go, there's always someone Jewish. And not only that, you believe the same things, you sing the same song, and there really is something special about that. Along with, of course, all of the melodies that are completely alien to you. Oh, yeah. No idea. <laughs> for me, I didn't have that reference point. For me, this was the case when, for the first time, I had been at student services and Jewish reform services in Britain already, but I had never been at a Jewish student reform service. You know, coming from that environment where I was the only kid yeah. in, in shul, you know, in a not very big shul, the 20 people on a Friday evening would be a very good turnout. That was definitely something, you know, that uh, I'm very happy for and that I'm going to remember uh, both on the Friday evening and on Saturday morning. Absolutely. And Friday night ended with, there was dinner, crazy thing happened. We sat down, Zach and I were sitting across from each other at the table and then right next to us sat the European Union of Jewish Students president, the EUJS president. But it was really an incredible way to be able to actually do some networking because ultimately like on the bus ride while Zach was enjoying his time talking to people, I was... <laughs> <laughs> a little hermit and just on my computer writing the speeches that I was hoping to be able to do and then never did because of stuff we'll talk about going forward but we'll get to that <laughs> <laughs> but yeah it was oh no it was very interesting because we uh had dinner and then was it before or after dinner that we had the uh, we had a talk basically they had these different meetings there was one on friday there were three on saturday and each of these they had eight options so the eight options was made it very difficult to really get a full sense of the discourse that was going on but the one that we went to on friday was about relations across the British Channel between the UK and the rest of European Jews, which was very interesting. It was hosted by two people from the EUJS, including the president. And it was a very interesting talk. It was a really cool experience just to be able to talk diaspora politics in that setting. Shout out to Avital and Aaron. With the, the session on Friday, if I remember correctly, was before dinner. So we spent some time talking in them about that and then not because we were being strategic about this. We're not hardline political agents calculating every single move. But we did end up sitting very close to also the president of the Union of Jewish Students on the other side. And so we had very uh, interesting conversations throughout that evening. There were also some further possibility to socialize. Someone, not me, but someone might have accidentally turned the light off without anyone noticing. But uh, I'm not a snitch <laughs> or uh, the comedic value, because that's one thing that actually will come up later. No use of electrical devices yeah. within social spaces. And that's going to be important. Yeah, just kind of on that same point, UJS really pushes this idea that it's a cross-communal institution, therefore they really try to embrace Jews that are Orthodox, Reform, anywhere between that, liberal, I don't know, there's too many options at this point. But because of that, they end up, in a sense, almost reproducing more Orthodox as the norm, which I think is, in a sense, a little problematic. It can marginalize non-Orthodox Jews, which is, I think, think actually the opposite of some of the politics in the US where reformed Jews are the majority of Jews. I think it's a little different here in the UK. That's very interesting to see that divide. There has to be, you know, in as much as there is inclusivity in our communal spaces, if there are to be cross-communal spaces, it is difficult. I'm not saying that necessarily I would place the line in, in the same way, but, you know, there could be, for example, Jewish atheists who don't have a service to go to and what is provided for them. I think there is an explanatory service that is done, but that in and of itself is also in some way uh, normative. There's certainly interesting areas there to discuss, which I think any conference or convention goer would have an interesting perspective. Yeah, so then we get to Saturday, and Saturday we had more services in the morning, we read Torah, we did all the usual Saturday morning prayers. Probably up to a majority of people did not go to services on Saturday morning. A lot of people just chose to sleep in. I didn't really know that was an option. Not sure I would have done it even if I did know it was an option. I, I did enjoy the service on Saturday. I don't tend to go to a lot of services myself, so I really do enjoy just being in different spaces and being able to pray in any way that I find meaningful. I was late for the service. That caused a little panic. I was supposed to read the Haftarah. Not seeing me the beginning of the service, someone else took up the Haftarah. And when they, when they saw me 
sitting whilst they were starting to read the Haftarah, they panicked. <laughs> and, and afterwards they were apologizing, which is completely not their fault. That is on me. But, you know, I had that possibility that was that was on me. The last time I read my Haftarah was on my bar mitzvah. Yeah. Me not reading that Haftarah had a big symbolical value. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. And then there were three time slots. I'm thinking of the best way to describe this, in which there was the possibility of going to uh, different talks. Yeah, so there was the one before lunch and then two after lunch. The one before lunch, for that one, I went to a talk that was by the organization Hope Not Hate, which was with a speaker named Joe Mulhall, who's an activist and academic. It was about fighting fascism and combating the far right. So it was essentially a conversation between this Joe Mulhall and Joel Rosen, who's the UJS president. And then it was also a Q&A as well. So during the Q&A, I actually asked a question. And that question was essentially asking about the rise of Israeli fascism and its connections to the global far right, as well as like how we can combat that in our own Jewish spaces. And this guy, Joe Mulhall, then replied by literally saying, and I quote, that's the question I was hoping wouldn't be asked, end quote. So I, I thought that was... Bonus points for honesty. Yeah, I thought that was very telling because I asked this question. It was kind of two questions. And then he said he didn't want that to be asked and then basically ignored that and answered the other half of the question. So I just thought it was very telling because this is an organization that's very, very liberal in their understanding of fascism. And one of the people running it is Baroness Anderson or Ruth Smith, who was also there. Do you want to say anything about her little remark? Without getting into all of the specifics of the history of anti-Semitism and the Labour Party, I knew the name Ruth Smith. Uh, I did not know the name Baroness Anderson. So when they were saying Baroness Anderson is coming, that didn't ring any bells, whether in a positive or a negative meaning. And she had an interesting pitch for students to come to their talk. This former MP, now in the House of Lords, asked, you know, people, come, come talk to me if you hate Corbyn. Yeah. Which, you know... It was met by, like, cheers and laughter as well. It was, like, a very bizarre moment to be witnessing her literally say, only come to my talk if you hate Corbyn to a renowning applause. I don't know if it was, I wouldn't say necessarily astounding applause, but it was more just, like, so much acceptance for that sort of, like, oh hating Corbyn is just the norm. And yeah, it was just kind of gross. Yeah. Just a little gross. It's just a bit, I was not particularly paying attention to the, you know, complete breakdown of how many people, you know, and when there's a group of people that cheer and, pe- and the rest that don't cheer, it's sometimes difficult to specifically say how many people got the reference or how many people did not say anything because they were, you know, using their phone under the table. But uh, yeah, it's just a bit, it's not something that we can necessarily escape from, nor necessarily should not be uh, discussing. But, you know, specifically us, we are looking at really working into the into the future, no pun intended, of organising and not necessarily being stuck on a lot of these forms of discussion and at this point you know the students that are now in their first year would have been what 10 11 years old when jeremy corbyn became leader of the labor party wow that makes me feel old (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's like i can barely remember and the experience of that what else can we say we didn't go to that talk no. So, but I did go to a talk at that time that was, I believe it was essentially how is the relationship of the diaspora to Israel changing in light of the government and the fascism thereof. I thought that was an interesting conversation that was had. Not to say too much, but there was a very right-wing person that was making the argument like, oh, but why can they build a mosque on the Western Wall? Why can they do this? It's a Jewish land, a Jewish state. And I'm like, I didn't say this to his face directly, but it's like, dude, that's been there for like 1,200 years. But yeah, I actually made some points about the need to actually like recognize Palestinian suffering as well as trying to shift the discussion in the way that actually we did have some good conversations and there was a lot of actually productive discourse that was going on, even if there were some problems with just the way that entire talk was set up. Yes, I didn't go to that talk. Kudos to you putting the bar up to the Olympus by saying that Palestinian suffering should be recognized. (laughs) Truly, truly, UJS discourse on Palestine is reaching its its heights. Yeah, the glass ceiling has been shattered. (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely. I went to quite a few interesting talks. I went to a discussion on the impact of the Holocaust on Jewish life today, which on one hand, I was very keen on going there to talk about my experience growing up in Poland and still being in the land where the Holocaust physically took place. On the other hand, I didn't want to necessarily 
hog the conversation because that's also not something that a lot of the other people that had very important inputs into the discussion uh, could relate with as much. Still, you know, I sometimes feel this responsibility to some extent, not because of who I am myself, but because there are so few Polish Jews that will be able to go into these spaces. I've heard from reliable sources that there hasn't been a Polish Jewish uh, student at a UJS convention or conference in at least 10 years, at least not one that was open with it and viewed it as an entry point to discussions of this kind. I went to a discussion by an organization called Solutions Not Sides, which was packed. I sat down next to the very right-wing candidate for UJS presidency. One person on the other side was talking to the president of the Union of Jewish Students, wondering what they were thinking about. I was trying to be polite generally and also, you know, reinforce this idea that we are present in these spaces. We don't have to cower from right-wingers. We should not be easily intimidated. That discussion was quite interesting. I think that it still suffered from something that a lot of these forms of constructive dialogue between pro-Israel or pro-Palestine people, between Israelis and Palestinians, uh, however you might want to frame it, that they suffer from. It is the lack of recognition of institutional factors in divides. You know, we can talk about the need to recognize Palestinian and Israeli suffering, or that the current situation damages both Israelis and Palestinians. That's undeniable. Palestinian writers such as Edward Said or Rashid Khalidi have pointed out very clearly. But if you don't recognize the institutional and systematic origins of this violence, you end up just being a little bit of an enlightened centrist. And I made that point to those people. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that I wanted to mention that I forgot to say was during the talk I went to that was on Israel Palestine stuff, I did actually plug our motion that was about adopting a human rights-based approach to Israel-Palestine because one thing that I don't think we mentioned yet, we were not really able to do any campaigning while we were actually at the conference. I did do some speech prep before on the way there, assuming that I'd be able to actually do some of this. Like, we prepped leaflets and stuff. We were ready to go all out and, like, actually try to put forward this vision to the people there. But we quickly found that we weren't allowed to. You weren't allowed to have leaflets. And because of that I took advantage of those spaces which again only had at most like one eighth of the people in attendance actually there at least had far less to actually be able to talk about this because it was very difficult to actually push the platform that we put forward in this space because there was basically zero institutional way to do so. We will be getting to that very shortly uh, because with those three sets of discussions Shabbos is almost over. So the possibility of using your phones publicly and talking about political issues, because as we know, talking about politics on Shabbos is rude to many people. I guess so. To me, it seems like it's the best way to actually engage with Shabbos, but that's to each one's own, I guess. I hate when my politics gets political. <laughs> so to talk a little bit about the conference, specifically the part where we discuss and debate and vote on motions. There are many, many motions that are submitted every year, but this year it was almost exceptional. I think it was twice as many as it was the previous year. There was over 100 pages worth of motions, uh, 120 something. Mm -hmm. And what that means is because these motions have to be debated on in person and discussed in person, at least to some extent, they are not all going to be able to be discussed. So the solution to this is to do something called a priority ballot and you decide the order in which these motions are discussed. And then as many as them get through, get through. And those that don't, either they end up in the bin or there is a procedural motion that passes every time, but it is a waste of the limited time that we have there to push them to the National Council, which is a different story that we will probably talk about sometime in the future. So the way in which the priority ballot works is that only people who attend the conference in person are able to vote on for some reason that is difficult for us to understand, because voting for president can be done by any Jewish student, voting online for national council, even joining the discussions on the motions during the conference themselves, all is done online. So there seems to be no real reason as to why the priority ballot has to be decided by students themselves. Perhaps it can give a little bit of a mainstream bias, but I don't know if that is the reason as to why that is the case. Nevertheless, because it has to take place before the conference, at least sometime before the conference so they can arrange all of the points in motion, that priority ballot has to close before conference begins on Sunday at 10 a.m. in the morning, at least sometime before. Bearing in mind that the final motions document is only published 
a few days earlier. I think it was on the Tuesday or the Wednesday. Yeah, I think it was Wednesday. Wednesday. And that might or might not include amendments, which is another matter as well. You know, first of all, even if as soon as the motion documents were published, that gives Jewish students about three or four days to vote on a priority ballot to decide the order in which you want all these motions. Because of that limited time, most students will not skim through all of them, let alone read them in detail, which is a disadvantage, of course, to those of us who have put a lot of effort into these motions and have looked at every word, how it can be written, how it, how it might not be written. So point being in the end is that the priority ballot has to be done for some reason, but it is done at conference. And because it's sent online, it has to be done after Shabbos, which at this time of year is about 5 p.m. So that small window, and I encourage all of the listeners to try and visualize this, that gives you a maximum voting window of about Saturday 5 p.m. to about Sunday 8 a.m. That final point is what it was. Most of that is the night already, but even so, that's only a few hours. And that isn't the best case scenario. That wasn't the case because the time that we were able to vote on the priority ballot was, I think it was something like 10 minutes to 11 p.m. Yeah. How did you find out about it? Uh, oh yeah, for me, I saw people on their phones because what was going on around, it started around nine or something, there was silent disco, which if you don't know that you have like these headsets that are all connected to a receiver somewhere. So there's like three channels and like there's no music in the room, but everyone has a headset. So you're able to like dance to the same songs and it's like, it's a good time. But that was going on from nine. We were hoping that the priority ballot was going to be out at five, as you mentioned. And we were like checking our phones. Like, when is this going to come out? Is it ever going to come out? The thing was going, it was basically a party they were selling alcohol i was a little drunk i was dancing and i was like okay eventually this has got to come out so i would just like wander around do a loop and eventually i did a loop and this was like you said around almost 11 p.m and i started seeing people on their phones and be like the priority ballot's out the priority ballot's out and this was like in a side room away from the majority of people of the few people that actually cared and like this was almost 11 p.m we were all a little drunk and tired but like the only way to find out about it was by literally seeing people on their phone being like oh crap this is already out so it became very weird because i've actually helped run a silent disco before and those receivers there is a way to speak into them so that everyone that's wearing one can hear it and gets the memo they could have very easily done that they could have announced oh the priority ballot's out if you care you should fill it out they didn't There was nothing of the sort. Instead, you had to actively care and actively not only see people in a group on their phones that might be doing something that might matter for democracy, I guess, but there was no announcement at all. I had to literally check my phone's email that like eventually reloaded and said, yeah, that's there, I guess it's out. And then we like tried to get people to actually fill it out and it was a nightmare. And because of this being in a quite secluded location, the internet connection was poor. There was no internet. Well, the 3G or 4G connection that any of us would have was poor. There was a Wi-Fi that they did not give out to people, which gave us additional problems because we had people that wanted to vote online and we wanted to tell them that on the conference day itself, now is our motion, can you vote for us now? But we had a very difficult time communicating. Eventually, because these kind of things, they always leak out, the Wi-Fi password was available. I forgot what it is now at this point. But of course, when hundreds of people try to get on a Wi-Fi that is not supposed to be used by them, that also is going to cause delays. So when I, having internet problems throughout the entire weekend, did not receive that ballot, I thought, okay, maybe this is a problem with my phone. Later, I got some reception and I saw that I was getting other messages. So I just didn't get the ballot. I'm not saying that this being specifically myself, because I know there was the case of other people, including other right-wingers who are not getting their ballot. But uh, the whole thing, you know, you can try and imagine us uh, trying to get people who we think might be interested in the priority ballot, trying to tell them at almost midnight, because what we had to do is we had to figure out ourselves which order we wanted it to be in. There was a hundred motions and all of them were able to be ranked if one wanted to. Now, someone with a little bit of software engineering and creativity skills might have thought that if this is supposed to be accessible on mobile, then the best way to do it would be to have the motions to be able to slide on your phone so that you can choose which ones you want most at the top 
or which ones you want most at the bottom. Or maybe you could rank the motions out of 10, perhaps, instead of having to rank them from 1 to 60. They, they've split it up into three baskets. So there's like 100 motions. One basket was like 20, a little more than 20. The second was also like 20, a little bit more than 20. And then the third basket, which had most of our motions, the most overtly political motions, there was like 60. So it became a whole pain to be able to actually rank those 60 motions because who's going to actually spend the time to rank 60 motions one by one? And it created a weird system where there is essentially just the ones at the top would just end up getting ranked the highest because if you have 60 motions, are you really going to scroll all the way down before you rank one of them one? No, you're not. You're going to rank within the first 10, maybe 20 at most. So there was just a number of non-democratic realities in this ballot that ultimately just made it very, very difficult to have any real democracy within the way this was set up. Yes. And the baskets, they were supposed to correspond to three different areas, community, campus, UJS and JSOX, if I'm not mistaken. Baskets meant very, very little to us in our organizing because we couldn't decide which baskets we wanted the motions to go into. But motions that were very similar to ours ended up in different baskets. One, for example, I think was on Jewish culture, very similar in their discussion were not comparable. So what's the point of a preference if the motions are discussed differently anyway? And all of this was going in an atmosphere of, you know, most people that go to UJS conference don't go there specifically to focus on the political stuff. That's definitely a minority. doesn't mean the other people are not interested, they just don't treat it as their priority interest. So when the priority ballot ended up and most people were in the middle of the party, most people like didn't really care. It was never discussed how many people voted in the priority ballot. I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like water. It also led to a reality where I saw so many people like, oh, they wanted to fill it out, but they were too lazy. So they would just, I think Yachad, one of the two organized groups that were there besides us, they had basically like a list that they put together. And then they just had a few people taking other people's phones and literally filling it out for them, which doesn't seem democratic. That just seems like a really poorly done ballot that leads people to just take shortcuts because they want to contribute, but also don't really take the time to think for themselves. And what is democracy if you don't actually have critical thinking? That's an accusation against Yahad that might not stand up in court. I would say that it's not a, a sling at Yahad, it's more of a sling at just the priority ballot. Yes, and there were people that would just say, you know, just do it for me. And we saw that list that not Yahad, but rather the group that is informally organized by some people involved with Yahad because uh, they don't decide to market it in at least some kind of coherent way that we do. And because there was only a few of us, we didn't even have the base numbers to influence the vote in that kind of way, especially since I wasn't able to vote. Yeah. But in the end, before we were able to, you know, reach out to people and remind them to vote on the priority ballot, we had to sit down in a room and figure out what's the order, which is in which, what are the corresponding numbers of these motions. And by that point, I had given up on the possibility of voting. I approached one of the UJS sabbatical officers who was responsible for it. And they said that they will get back to me on it, but never did. And then next morning, what I wanted to do is to say that my voting didn't work. Can I submit? this to you on paper. And because the deadline was 8am and most partying or discussions were happening to 2-3am, I'm dedicated to this stuff, but I'm not dedicated enough to wake up two hours early just to submit a piece of paper. And by that point, they said that it was too late. That would probably be ignored. Yes, there would be no protocol for that. Adding to that, that we were not allowed to bring any leaflets or posters, which we thought of doing and even created. Yes. Like we, we were ready. We did this work. They just were like, nope, you're not allowed to do this. Sorry. We had some conversations uh, beforehand with the uh, authorities in UJS. But, you know, we're trying to tackle this sense of voter ignorance that was very general. We thought perhaps we can write a short declaration and publish that not only on our social media, but also print it and put it up in a few different spaces. And in response, we heard that that has never been done before which seems strange. On one hand, I can completely understand that there is a time and space for this kind of stuff and doing it, you know, in the middle of a, of a service is not appropriate. But perhaps in the spirit of how a lot of student union elections are organized, where there are certain spaces on campus or in different buildings 
where you can put up posters, where you can leaflet, where you can campaign. It would have been extremely easy for UJS to give one room in this whole complex of builders to say that within this time and this space, you can talk about your motions, you can talk about your run for national council. This isn't a question of practicality, and it's not a question of it being inappropriate. It would be definitely appropriate for students to know what motions they should be voting on. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't allowed. So with all of that being said, with all of us having very limited experience in this kind of environment, I think that we were very pleased that one of our motions placed high enough in one of the baskets to be discussed and voted on. And that was because I suspect, because I was told this afterwards, some acquaintances that I have said later that they voted on the motions because they thought that they were good. But I had showed them the social media that we created on the Friday night. So for me or for them, it wasn't a problem. But if Jewish students who were not comfortable looking on someone's phone clandestinely somewhat on uh, Shabbos, there was no way of approaching them about that, really, at least not in any organized fashion. And the motion that we managed to get high enough was our motion on increasing access to Jewish culture in all its diversity. But I honestly think that's a good one to pass because there is an increasingly present demand to have alternative forms of Jewish communal engagement. And I think Jewish cultural engagement is the most of all of those because it's so easy to like really engage with Jewish culture in a way that is not even at all connected to religion. It can really help us understand who we are as Jewish people in a way that isn't pigeonholing Judaism as just a religion. Absolutely. So that brings us to Sunday. Sunday is when it all went down. We arrived around 10 a.m. in the morning to start the conference. It was about what you'd picture. You have 300 chairs, a stage at the front, felt very official. You had a bunch of like banners, UJS, voice of Jewish students, as they like to say, on the walls and on the theater or bima, as we might call it. It was interesting because it felt so official and they were like, oh, this priority ballot it meant that everything was democratically run but like there was a hybrid setting of it where there was people on zoom calls who were supposed to be able to vote but because the wi-fi was so bad routinely were not able to vote even though they were theoretically supposed to and signed up to virtually attend the conference they just weren't able to vote often we got to it we had two motions which we thought we were going to be able to get our jewish academic engagement motion was also close enough that we really did think we were going to get a chance to speak on that one as well. But unfortunately, right as it was about to get put up, it was superseded by a procedural motion, which called to put a different motion above it, which was one about combating anti-Semitism denialism, which is one that I'm pretty depressed actually did pass because ultimately that motion didn't really define anti-Semitism denialist, but it was about people that do not uphold the mainstream narrative about labor anti-Semitism crisis. And it basically reaffirmed UJS's role combating people that do not accept this narrative that the left of the Labour Party is virulently anti-Semitic reproduces the role of UJS in attacking non-Zionist people within public life who challenge Zionism and even more importantly challenge the Israel lobby, which is I think a very dangerous motion that did pass. More personally, it (laughs) prevented our uh, increasing engagement to Jewish academics motion from even coming up, which I think is one that could have been really good to actually be able to focus on expanding and deepening connections between Jewish studies departments and Jewish communal life because there's just not a lot of Jewish studies departments here in the UK and that's something that I think is really important to actually be able to preserve and deepen the reality of Jewish life is to actually have Jewish academic engagement with who we are as a people and really asking these questions about Jewish life past and present. And those that exist are often completely disconnected from local Jewish communities, whether they be student or not. Absolutely. This is to a large extent the case in Oxford. It's the case in London where UCL has one of the best Jewish studies departments not just in the UK, but in Europe as well. That's not necessarily the fault either of the academics or the students, but that is the situation. The ironic thing is, is that although the procedural motion that authorizes the uh, discussion of a particular motion that was too low on the order to be realistically debated, although one UJS sabbatical officer would come up and say that the order was democratic, because of the priority ballot, these insertions of motions that were below were quite some way, because 
they were voted on almost every person that was able to vote, much more democratic, quite arguably so. Yeah, but unfortunately that didn't mean that the community made the right choices necessarily because the last motions, one of our motions passed and then basically right after the 150 minute total of voting concluded, there was a chance to essentially renew lapsing motions because the way it works is that a motion that passes is accepted for three years and one of the motions that lapsed, the only one that was actually renewed or even tried to be renewed was one titled Combating anti Israel rhetoric and anti-Zionism within the NUS, which is the National Union of Students. And that one really blindsided us. We hadn't planned for this to happen and it came up. The way it works is only one person speaks for, then one person speaks against, and then unless there's a procedural motion to extend the debate, there's just a vote then and there. And we were worn out, to say the least, by the time we got there and beaten down, but one person did come up on that motion and made a very impassioned speech about the need to combat Israeli apartheid. And the moment they said apartheid, people like three feet next to me, the right-wingers, started booing and heckling him, and someone at the stage was like, hey, you can't do that. But like, I really wanted to spit on one of their shoes but I could feel in that moment that had I done that a fight would have broken out in that room there was a lot of rage the person that made that remark literally left the room for like 20 minutes because they just did not feel like they could be in there safely and unfortunately that motion is renewed and I think it really speaks to the fact that the UJS is not a neutral Jewish institution it has a role that it's been playing within the drama of Jewish politics here in the UK for the last few years despite what we been trying to do that hasn't changed at least not for now at least not for now yes that was a difficult moment especially for the person who spoke about it on stage in defense of the chair he did say that that was very rude and unacceptable not that there was any punishment for it of any kind i think the chair did threaten to give him a strike if they did it again which is like three strikes you're out type thing but again like which i got a strike for whispering to a person that was trying to talk to me behind me during someone else's speech not that again i don't think that this is questionable i think that this is something that we need to emphasize, I've been asked this question, do I think that UJS is intentionally undemocratic? Given the logistics, all the issues, I don't think even if people in UJS leadership wanted for this to be in this way, I don't think that they would have the physical capacity to do so. I think that it is really to a certain extent, treating the forms of democracy as an afterthought in the same way that perhaps Model United Nations is, in which in Model United Nations, I don't know, Ben, if you've ever been involved, I see shaking of the head. I went to a few Model United Nations, including one that was quite serious in Serbia, co-organized by their Ministry of Foreign Affairs and their UN mission to Serbia. It was not the sort of one day is done at your local high school. It was one that the actual Secretary General of the UN sent a letter to. And the meetings are official. Everyone has prepared position to discuss the motions that are presented. They're well written. But in the end, everyone is playing make-believe. I represented South Korea on the Security Council. But the problem is, is that the sort of lacking seriousness, not in that case, but the make-believe idea that MUN has is not what should be the case in an organization that claims to be a democratic voice of Jewish student communal life. Yeah, no, I think it's definitely true. I mean, I think there is a degree of structural Zionism within the UJS. I mean, I think one of its core mission statements is Israel engagement, which like, hey, we're not saying we shouldn't engage with Israel. We're just advocating for a very, very different form of Israeli-Palestinian engagement. But being in that space, I think it really came clear that it is a hegemonically Zionist space. Like it was actively difficult to speak up. And especially as time went on, like there was only so much I could take. I think I left the conference feeling like I had actively taken psychic damage because of the amount of BS I heard over the course of the weekend. But nonetheless, I think it was relatively empowering. Like we did meet new people that we wouldn't have met otherwise who are on the left, some of which are doing some really interesting things outside of what we're doing. And I ultimately think that like it wasn't a waste of time. It may have been a very frustrating experience at times, but it was one that really showed that like, I mean, 
mean, I think Zach's made the point to me before, like we had three people of us physically there. If we can do the groundwork to make it so that next time there's five or 10 or 20, like that's how we can genuinely make change in our communities. There's so much that is seen as non-mainstream and therefore it's just like impossible to actually make something mainstream. But like the reason we're producing this podcast is so we can try to lay the groundwork for more of this work going forward. That's something that's easier in some spaces and much more difficult in others. But it's something that can be connected across the diaspora. And it's really important that we recognize that we are all part of the same struggle. Absolutely. And I think, Ben, you mentioned to me at conference, because we were all in dorms. We didn't choose who we were in with. But you were with someone who certainly had quite a lot of right-wing tendencies, right? Yeah, no, there were two people. One person identified as a right-wing populist and was like supporting Trump and Bolsonaro and Netanyahu. And another one was, he said he was center, but like leans right. And as I would really engage with them, because what else did I have to do in that room? I couldn't escape. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I joke. They were good people, despite their views. Like, I found that like, I really could reach them. There's just so much like gut reaction to like, oh, if you support Palestinians, that means that you are calling for the genocide of the Jews in Israel. It's like, no, I'm simply recognizing that like, you can't have Jewish self-determination in Israel-Palestine if you are doing that on the backs of denying that same right to Palestinians. And that's something that like a lot of people can agree on, even if they are right wing. And I really think it's important for us to start reframing this whole debate because there's a lot of common ground that if we can do the work to really flesh out what diasporism really means to us as Jews, I really do think this is a battle that in the long term, we absolutely can win. And I think that we, in many ways, have better arguments. We have a perspective on a lot of diaspora life that not only intuitively makes sense, it makes sense in its actions and its conclusions. When I went to speak up for that motion for Jewish culture, I spoke for about a minute in front of a crowd. Quite a few people knew me in there to some extent. They had known that I was on the Palestine Society exec three years or or they saw me speak up in previous seminars. But I presented a motion, I gave the advantages, I addressed some of the criticism that might have been had. And in the end, the only person to come up against it was the right-wing candidate. He gave a very sort of nothing speech against it. And in the end, the vote was five abstentions, no one against, all in favor. And that was one motion. I think that at least two, three, four of the other motions, had they gone up, had we had the possibility to to speak about them, even if they didn't necessarily pass, we would have broadened the conversation. So there's definitely possibility to, to do that. And there's no reason why we can't go in there in the future, guns blazing. Not in, not in a violent <laughs> way, not in a violent way. I meant passionately. No, I totally agree. I think it's one of these things that like there are some hot button issues that are so contentious and so polarizing that like when we really sit down and really think like what matters to our lives as Jews in terms of really engaging with our communities individually and collectively, like there is so much more to Jewish life than just fighting anti-Semitism and fighting the political battle over Israel-Palestine. Then like if we really sit down and talk these out, like I really think we can find common ground. I mean, like I think there's one policy that Zach's brought up to me that I think really emphasizes just this more creative approach to Jewish diaspora politics. You want to say what that is? Absolutely. I believe that we should have a Jewish bagel worker cooperative on every corner. Absolutely. Or at least in every corner that has Jews living on it. Like, I think it's really important to emphasize those alternative forms of Jewish communal life that are not solely religious, but really engage with the fact that we're a people that have a long, beautiful history. And we need to stop focusing on these tiny little pieces that we keep getting stuck on, because of course they are important pieces. But again, they aren't really ones we're able to choose. They're ones that are thrust upon us. And I think it's really important for us to reclaim the diasporist politics and really focus on building a self-determining and thriving culture across the Jewish diaspora. Couldn't have said it better myself. We've been speaking for a while now. So regarding our conclusions, maybe briefly, Ben, you'd like to speak about 
the kind of ways in which we are going forward and then we'll leave it at that. Yeah, absolutely. So like this podcast is quite literally the coming out of the work that we did leading up to and following the UJS conference. This podcast we see as a way to be a platform to encourage the process that we built around the UJS conference into a much broader process. We really think that this podcast can be a way for us to bring on speakers from across the Jewish diaspora, different left-wing Jewish organizations, and to really lay that ideological foundation to really find that common ground that had we actually had this work done before our experience at the UJS conference, I genuinely think it would have been a whole lot easier. And this podcast, the goal is to be able to make it easier for future generations of organizers and activists. By future, I mean like next week, next two weeks, next, <laughs> year, next couple of years. I don't mean distant future. I mean like very soon because this is a process that's happening now. I truly believe that there is a movement taking place. Like if not now, not a mode, they were found in the wake of the 2014 war on Gaza. There is currently an unprecedented escalation within the crisis in Israel-Palestine that I truly believe is leading to a watershed moment within diasporic Jewish organizing. And I really believe that next year in Jerusalem at the deepest sense. Like we have so much to give the world, not just me, not just Zach, but like the Jewish diaspora in a deep, wide, broad sense that like we really need to stand up as a diaspora. We need to be able to have self-determination that is not just Zionism. We need to find a new form of Jewish self-determination. And we hope that we can play a role in making that a reality. Absolutely. There's so much, so, so much that can be done, even with resources that exist already today. But that's a different story. I think that the discussion that we've had concludes itself in quite a good way. If you have listened right to the end, I think that both of us would like to thank you very much from both of our hearts for listening to us ramble at this point for depending on how long you've listened to the two parts that this will be about an hour and a half. We weren't expecting it to be this much, but there's honestly so much to talk about. And that will be continued. For now, Ben, would you like to say the final words? Thank you for listening. And we really appreciate the time that you spent and the space that you're in to be able to actually come to this. We really appreciate it. And genuinely, we look forward to working with you in the future. Every single one of you indirectly and directly. Likewise. Shalom. Shalom. Peace and power. Have a good one. It's up to us to call ourselves to task, to sing what's good and true, to bring about redemption. It's what we were freed to do. For what's the point of being here if we're not moved to change our ways? It's time to live our praise We are carrying the stories Of the ones who came before What stories will be told of us When we are here no more We commit ourselves to action it brings meaning to our days. It's time to live our praise. It's up to us to own the vision. We are an answer to a call. It's up to us to live the words we speak for the benefit of all. It's up to us to bow down deeply There's a broken world to raise It's time to live our praise It's time to 